Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Today's podcast is sponsored by Compounded Daily, a newsletter written by industry experts like my friend Darren, who runs the How Money Works YouTube channel. I'll be writing occasional pieces for them too. One of the difficult things about YouTube is that you have to make content that the algorithm likes, but sometimes the most insightful pieces aren't a good fit. Compounded Daily is filled with insightful finance and business stories and perspectives that you just won't get from people who haven't worked in the financial industry. I'll be writing up my thoughts on today's interview so that you can get my perspective on it tomorrow by signing up to Compounded Daily today. Whether you're a financial professional or just looking for a great source of business news, head over to compounderdaily.com to sign up for the free newsletter. I can't recommend it enough. Sign up using the link in the description below. It's totally free and if it's not providing value, you can unsubscribe at any time. I'm delighted to have Rob Copeland on the channel today to discuss his new book, The Fund, about Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater Associates, the biggest hedge fund in the world. This is the first time I've been sent a book from a publisher that required me to sign an NDA, and that's because the book is somewhat controversial. Ray Dalio has written a number of books and made numerous media appearances describing how his principles led to his phenomenal business success. Rob, a finance reporter for the New York Times, who was the hedge fund reporter for the Wall Street Journal, tells a very different story. I wouldn't describe this as a negative book. I feel it simply gives a different perspective on Ray Dalio. The book calls into doubt whether Dalio's well-known principles were at the root of his success or if other attributes led to his rise to the top of the hedge fund industry. The book draws on hundreds of interviews with those inside and around Bridgewater and questions if Dalio's much-promoted principles were truly the secret to his success or if they were the foundation for a toxic culture of paranoia and backstabbing within the firm, as some people say. The book just came out today, so let's talk to Rob and see what he has to say. Welcome to the podcast. I very much enjoyed reading your book. I got it maybe about a week ago and read it once again, kind of like Zeke's book. I read it in a day or two just because it's quite a compelling read and it's it's a topic I'm quite interested in. Um, can you tell me about how you first, like what made you decide to write a book about Ray Dalio and Bridgewater? Sure. And first of all, thank you for having me on. Ray Dalio and Bridgewater have sort of been a part of my life now for probably close to a decade and a half. I actually got my, my teeth started in financial journalism at a hedge fund trade publication, and they were writing a cover story about Bridgewater And when I joined in 2012. So really, since then, it's been, it's been a topic for me. I've been sort of gobsmacked by Ray's entire publicity tour over the past six or so years. You know, he wrote his own book, Principles, Life and Work. And I think you can, you, if you know nothing else about my book, 
you should know that I believe I've written the first nonfiction book about Ray Dalio and, and the principles. This is the first book I've received for a review that came with an NDA. So obviously there's a certain amount of controversy around this book. Um, and I see also it's filled with footnotes from mm. uh, Bridgewater lawyers kind of clarifying their side of the story. Has mm. Ray read the entire book or just parts of it? And kind of how does he feel about it? Well, what I think we'll probably hear pretty soon how he feels about it. Uh, we're recording this right before the book comes out. You're right. You did sign an NDA. This has been such an, an incredibly exciting, nerve-wracking journey for me. I told Ray about this book personally in, in mid-2020, and he responded very poorly. I told him in an email. And almost uninterrupted since then, before a word was written of this book, he's been hiring law firms and PR firms to yell at me, to pressure my publisher. They threatened us with a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. This is all literally before the book was written, while I'm still talking to people about it. And Just because he doesn't trust you to tell a story that he'll like? It's fair to say that Ray doesn't really like any independent journalism about him that is less than 100% laudatory. It's not just me. I currently write for the New York Times, but I was a Wall Street Journal reporter for most of the time I was writing this book. There are New York Times reporters that he has attacked, you know, Business Insider, pretty pretty much anyone. Um, of course, other colleagues at the Wall Street Journal. Now, he doesn't have a copy of the book, but I did hire a fact checker, and the fact checker sent Ray every single fact, to my knowledge, that's in this book. There were lawyers, instead of responding to the fact checker, he hired a bunch of libel attorneys to threaten a lot of lawsuits, they sent us hundreds of pages of letters, and I incorporated their feedback. Look, I listened. He, he didn't want to be interviewed. In a way, I didn't need him to be interviewed. He's done a lot of interviews. I think I could probably cosplay an interview as Ray Dalio at, at this point. And, and you have interviewed him multiple times in the past, right? Like for the Wall Street Journal and so on. Oh, oh yes. The wonderful thing about Bridgewater for many years was that it was sort of like the easiest hedge fund ever to write about because Ray would just get on the phone and just couldn't stop talking. So uh, I, I've always heard his perspective. I'm open to hearing more of it now. But um, look, I think it's time for other people's voices to be heard. That's what this book is about. When I read this book, there's, you know, there's, there's plenty of skepticism in there. But I also felt that there were a lot of insights as to what made Ray successful and maybe even stories he wouldn't want to tell himself, but just even about his skill at, uh, you know, getting along with people. He, uh, you know, kind of made good and influential friends. He was well read to the extent that a, a rather wealthy family took him under their mm. wing. And, uh, you know, uh, he was even sort of asked by uh, this very wealthy family to sort of put some polish on their grandchild. You know, they, they saw that much in Ray. So to me, there's maybe a different perspective on what brought about Ray's success, but a different perspective doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that either is necessarily right or wrong. What, what well, do you think about that? I think it's really interesting what you just brought up, because I do go into Ray's origin story. Ray has told his own origin story many, many times, including in his own autobiography. But what he 
I think he may have mentioned them offhand maybe once, but definitely not in principles. He's never talked about this wealthy family, the Lives, who really took him in as a surrogate son. And what I found so interesting was it was a huge part of his life and how he was able to go from being, you know, the son of a jazz musician to this world-famous multi-billionaire. But he leaves that out of his story. Because mm. I, and I, I can't answer for him why, but I can say that with the lives in the story, you realize that it's not all smarts. It's also connections. That he also sort of wheedled his way into this, into this family. By the way, not illegally either. He was quite, he was no. quite charming. What I love about this is after I started asking people about this family and this whole background about Ray, magically, it showed up on his Wikipedia page. I didn't put mm. it there. But all of a sudden, it was like, okay, this is going to be out there and we'll, you know, I'll let him answer uh, whether he had someone update that. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's sort of like it's I, I'm not sure that there's an obvious reason to hide this story either. It's sort of a great story that he's a young guy from a, you know, kind of middle working class background who's a golf caddy who manages to, you know, through because actually my takeaway was that he was very well read and he was mm -hmm. able to have the kind of conversations that maybe these people didn't expect of a golf caddy and they saw something in him and, you know, he attended every Thanksgiving dinner and things like that. Like, you know, there's that that says something about him. It doesn't it doesn't actually say anything negative. Like there's not much to hide, I would think, with a story like that for, for most people. For for most people. Right. But not not for Ray and not for a lot of successful business titans now. Now, Ray also has almost never talked about how his wife is a Vanderbilt Whitney. Um, you know, she's part of this colossal, famous uh, legacy with, with an amazing amount of wealth. What Ray and what, you know, Elon Musk likes to talk about this, a lot of other people, they, they love to tell the rags to riches story about how they pulled themselves up through their smarts. And I, I want to be clear. Though I believe that Ray has caused a lot of pain, and I do believe that the principles are nothing like what he said, I don't believe he's a dumb man. I don't believe that he didn't put in the work. He, he, that, but I do believe that there, there is a more complicated, more human story that, for some reason, he honestly has not been interested in telling. Yeah, no, because it's even interesting, like the some of the notes I've got down here about how he you know, takes briefcases full of research reports home with him every weekend. Like he, mm. you know, he's a very wealthy, very successful man who it would appear works very hard. Like it's, you know, there's no, mm. uh, you know, there's no sort of cruising along. Um, I think the other, the kind of, one of the, the big issues that I think many people have puzzled over with Bridgewater is that th there's a huge staff at Bridgewater and, and it would appear, I think Matt Levine has kind of joked about this in the past that almost 90% of Bridgewater is kind of, uh, you know, people dealing with the DOT program and, you know, f uh, the, the extra 10% is kind of actual investment work. And that that's kind of a feeling I get from your book as well. Like I, I, I feel I was three quarters through the book and I was like, who does any investing at this firm? Because, um, well, I'll, I'll let you uh, take over. There. Well, first of all, I'm a great fan of Matt Levine. And he's 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 right, but he's wrong there. He's actually overestimated 
the amount of the firm which is devoted to actual investing. Uh, what I found out was that inside Bridgewater, which had at peak had more than 2,000 employees, all these temporary contractors, Palantir, all of these consulting firms, there was something called the circle of trust inside. There were about 10 people who signed lifetime contracts, and they were the only people who purportedly really knew uh, what was going on with the investing. So I, I would actually take another step further. I would say all of this apparatus really boiled down to, to, to 10 people. Well, it's it's even interesting because one one of the big uh, people who feature in the book is Katina Stefanova. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And that that's a story that I happen to know because it was a, a big uh, there was a lot of press around sort of the rise and fall of of Marta mm -hmm. Capital. Uh, unless I get this wrong, it would appear that she was almost a human resources person who then went out and launched a hedge fund and. Uh, to a certain extent, then it came out that she hadn't mm. really done anything to do with investing at Bridgewater. Well, I would say I would say this. I think human resources is is maybe underplaying it a tiny bit, but it's definitely true that she was not part of the circle of trust. What I thought was so interesting was that she was very close with Ray Dalio, and he did treat her, frankly, any reasonable observer who reads the book will see that he treats her fairly monstrously. But she keeps going back to him again and again and again. And he does sort of have this siren call with with people. And then, look, she did not have a a positive depart, uh, a separation with, with them. And I don't carry her water in, in the book. I don't claim she's a she's one of the world's great gifted investors. But it is interesting to me that there was so much attention paid to her and so uh, relatively little attention paid to the world's biggest hedge fund and what it's really like there under under the principles and Ray. In a way, I would argue that there's no real heroes in the book. You know, you go through it and... Well, Patrick, the last chapter, the last chapter is called No Heroes. Spoiler yeah, alert. Yeah. So. One of the things that, that interested me in the book is that there's so many people who are quite wealthy, like, you know, one way or another, like e even if uh, Ray is withholding a few bonuses for various reasons, mm. uh, people are getting wealthy working there. And one of the people, I forget his name off the top of my head, but the guy from Apple, the inventor of the mm. iPod who mm. worked there, there's he comes off reasonably well in that he sort of sees the shark circling in the water and announces that he's out. But there's even still a period of humiliation for him. And I guess the thing that surprises me is that these people get so wealthy and they're in a position where they don't have to be mistreated, but they... I, I think they're so uh, drawn to the light or something that people... Mm tolerate you know there's a level of like if if you're kind of being called into an inquisition and you've seen this happen mm. a dozen times already you you know what's happening you know you see the hangman standing there it would appear to me that that i i'm surprised that so many people put up with this behavior especially when they don't have to well this really gets into the 20 billion dollar question right First of all, uh, you're thinking of John Rubenstein. And I actually remember yeah. Ray Dalio telling uh, the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal that John Rubenstein was coming in and he was going to save the day. So me finally finding out years later uh, through reporting what really happened with J 
John Rubenstein is, is just like it's watching the behind the scenes to a movie, you know, uh, that, that you saw many years ago. Now, why do people stay at Bridgewater? A lot of people ask that. There's probably two main questions I get. Why do people stay? Is it a cult? I will tell you, John Rubenstein, John Rubenstein knows better, for sure. He knows. He also got paid $50 million to do, or he, I should probably say, he got paid about $50 million to do close to nothing of worth. And as part of his separation agreement, he got to keep the money and he wasn't allowed to say anything about Bridgewater. He's a wealthy man and he took the extra money. So mm. this is, Ray Dalio loves to say over and over again, that they're just a small number of disaffected employees who whisper about him. And I don't think I've ever heard him address why he makes employees sign these strict NDAs, why he goes after employees who say anything anodyne about him publicly, and why he has to pay people so much when they're leaving just to make sure they don't say anything about him. You know, there is always, I guess, in Wall Street or on, uh, you know, uh, hedge funds, this the importance of keeping secrets, in particular mm. investment secrets. And even, you know, you can understand having very high quality IT to prevent, we'll say at a quant firm, you can't have someone hack in and steal all your sure. trading algos and that kind of thing. But it would appear that security was maybe surprisingly high at Bridgewater with, uh, you know, people like Comey working mm -hmm. there. And even there's a, a piece in your book, uh, you know, I, I don't think you confirmed it. I think you said that there were rumors that there were microphones hidden in the woods outside of the office building mm -hmm. when Comey worked out that sometimes people went out in the woods to have a private chat. Well, first of all, there's plenty that isn't a rumor about Jim Comey's time at Bridgewater that's that's just as uh, as wacky, frankly. But it's absolutely true that there is a, I mean, an employee, a former employee sued Bridgewater. He called it a, quote, cauldron of fear and intimidation. And rather than have that lawsuit go forward, Bridgewater paid a settlement. So mm. it requires a reporter to go in and, and try to figure out the, to get to the bottom of it. So far as the surveillance goes, Look, almost everything at Bridgewater is and was recorded. You're constantly being watched. People would come back to their computer screen if they didn't put a screensaver up, and there'd already be a post-it note from security saying, why didn't you put a screensaver up? There's an incredible amount to this day of fear inside Bridgewater that, that essentially anything you say or do can be used uh, against you. It's absolutely true that people suspected that even the woods were being monitored, that they, even if they took a personal phone call out there, it would be listened to. Ray and Bridgewater like to say that every trading firm protects its secrets. My findings and the book would suggest that there really weren't too many actual trading secrets to protect, that, he, that this whole security apparatus uh, really just intimidated and squelched any true dissent inside the firm. Well, it's interesting because even just uh, as we've just said, like the level of staffing close to 2000 people, mm. you know, you look at some of the other huge hedge funds. I, I doubt Millennium hires anything like that many people. And mm. it, it's because most of the staff at Millennium would be focused on investing. And, and uh, as I said, that was one of my takeaways reading it. Like you're three quarters of the way through the book and you're like, everyone's, uh, you know, watching videotapes of, you know, who didn't wash their hands at the bathroom or something like mm. that. And uh, no real work is getting done. And that, that 
I, I guess, you know, Ray is a wealthy man if he wants to spe spend his money on a huge sort of security apparatus and, uh, you know, building an app that, uh, that never comes to much fruition. I mean, you know, it's his money. He can spend it how he wants. But mm. it, it does come off as quite bizarre. And it also comes off maybe as a, a, a very challenging place to work. Well, that's the understatement of the century, a very challenging place place to work. I, I agree with everything you said. The, you're right, the book is, is, does focus a lot on these internal trials and tribulations. I would also say that if you read Ray's books, not just principles, but the sequels, they say very little substantive things about investing. And what he's become famous for, what he talks about in TED Talks, what he talks about in interviews with you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, Charlie Rose, on all these TV programs, it's almost never about investing. And part of the reason for that is that he has really pinned his legacy on the idea of these quote-unquote principles and on the fact that he has the answer to what you should do to live a more meaningful and meritocratic life. So I think if you read this book... And you and you finish that, and you believe that Bridgewater is a is a meritocratic place, then uh, then you've come to a different conclusion than I have. Well, the, there was a very comical part in the the book about what Christmas is like at the Dalio household. Do you want to tell that story? <laughs> so this was this was very amusing to hear. And by the way, one of Ray's sons worked at Bridgewater, so it it wasn't. I made a very clear point in the reporting of this book. I didn't go around asking people about his wife. I didn't go around asking people about his kids who didn't work at Bridgewater unless they showed up at a Bridgewater event. I didn't want this to be, um, you know, to go to go there because I think there's plenty no, that there's, Ray does. There's no muckraking, just to be clear, in the book. Like the mm. book is about a, a large business and how it runs. And, mm. you know, I think... In truth, as I said, it shows a lot of um, the positives as well. Like even, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like in terms of Ray's pitching of the principles, you could make a very good argument that Ray is a genius at getting PR. And, and how do you run the biggest hedge fund in the world? Well, he went on Oprah while everyone else was going on CNBC. You know, like he, he learned how to get his name out in the world. And that obviously has value. Well, I I'm going to come back to your question about the about the Christmas morning, but I oh, want to yes. talk about that. That I I would agree with you. He is brilliant at PR. I would also say, to my knowledge, he's never spoken publicly about that Oprah interview, and it's because it was a bit embarrassing for him. For me to get that Oprah interview, I I actually had to figure out who at Harpo Productions, Oprah. I had to find the right person. I had to ask for the archives. I had to sign a release. It's not. That episode of Oprah that he was on is he's never talked about it. Um, and I believe it's because in retrospect, if you look back on what he said on Oprah, uh, he, he really comes across. Uh, I would say it's not appropriate for 2023. I'll put it that way. Hmm. But but let me answer with Christmas morning because it's one of my oh, favorites, yes, yeah. which is that it was relayed inside to many people at Bridgewater, including by his son who worked at Bridgewater, that on Christmas morning, if his own kids gave him a gift that he didn't like or that he didn't think was appropriate, he would ask them right then, why did you buy this gift? What thought process did you go through that made you think this was a good gift? 
Like, can you imagine? I've never, by the way, given my dad a gift that he actually liked. I'm fairly sure. No, I, I, my dad has never done well at a gift from me either. Yeah, exactly. So it's my dad is a big fan of the New York Yankees, and I think I've bought him every book that's ever been written about the New York Yankees. And But you can just see it's very Ray Dalio to even with his own family, even on Christmas morning, you can imagine them giving him a tie that he thinks is ugly and him saying, I want to probe your thought process here with this tie it's like it would it's if it weren't true it would it would seem too strange to be true you know no there's an interesting thing in the book because i feel even i've got a a copy of one of his principles books here uh, that that i can't claim to have read in its entirety but i have Mm. looked through it and I think there is a thing of sort of Wall Street guys, investors, in particular kind of short-term investors, are always fascinated with decision-making, right? Because that's what you do for a living and getting good at making good decisions and and analysing your bad decisions might improve your your work. So, so I do understand that, but it would appear that... Uh, For a long time, Ray didn't really uh, do this so much, right? Like, at what point did Mm. the principle sort of take over from the investing process at Bridgewater? So the, the really crazy thing about researching this book is I thought that I would find the moment, you know, that moment when the principles are metastasized and weaponized. And I could say, okay, from this moment onwards, it really you know, jump the shark. And the truth is that the the principles, he doesn't even begin to talk about such things as principles until about 2005. He's, he's already a billionaire by then, Mm. by the way, he's already, he's, he's got more money than you could ever spend. And Bridgewater is a very successful firm. And he starts to look for like a higher meaning in life that he's about something more than, more than money. And when the principles begin, when he starts talking about them inside Bridgewater, even his longtime partner, Bob Prince, who's still there, tells people, look, these are just raised things. These are just raised principles. Like we don't we can respect them, but like this isn't this isn't tablets handed from from the mount. Um, and then as time goes on, as he becomes more famous after so-called predicting the 2008 financial crisis, he's he starts to sort of weaponize them against people. He keeps making up more and more principles and. It's probably for the last 10 years, I think it's fair to say that his close to full-time job has been deleting principles, creating principles, finding new ways to put people on trial according to the principles, and promoting himself publicly as the world's premier, most principled man. It um, it, it would appear there's something slightly... Uh, Nostradamus-like about some of these principles in that even the greatest devotees struggle to um, uh, to, to analyze them in the same way. And I guess one mm. of the parts of the book is about how he hired in teams of people to, to sort of code them up. Um, mm. Do you want to explain that and kind of how that went? So, so this is core to Ray Dalio's public argument which is that he uses the principles to create these this whole ratings apparatus where he where employees rate one another. And so that through this quantitative system, you know, it separates the wheat from the chaff that we find we suss out the best talent inside Bridgewater at certain things. And 
I am I'm going to spoil something in the book, but it's in the introduction. So you'll you know it's in the first ten pages, which is that this whole system was rigged from second number one to make Ray Dalio the top or close to top ranked person in almost all important categories. And yeah. once you know that, once you realize that to be true, and it is true, the whole thing looks different. Then you realize that he's creating all of these tools to talk about essentially to reprove that he's the greatest over and over and over again. Well, there's even a, a, a number of sort of entertaining points in the book where mm. he'll have a disagreement with someone. I, I think there was even, um, I forget, there was a professor from Harvard who was in town. They had a disagreement and Ray said to them, well, I think you'll find you're wrong. Let's run a quick poll on the iPads to see who's right here. And all of his employees are voting. And then he goes, well, you know, I won that poll. You're wrong. And it's like, well, everyone in the room is economically incentivized to say that one of these two people is correct. But does he do you think he doesn't realize that or he realizes it, but he just kind of wants to win the argument? So that first of all, that's Niles Ferguson, the fairly yes. famous Harvard professor. And yes, that did happen. It's actually a favorite thing of Ray and others at Bridgewater to do is you stop a meeting at its tracks and you hold a poll. But remember, your your votes are sort of weighted based on how, how believable, how credible you are. So Ray's vote counts more than yours. Now... But but even if it was equally weighted, if we have the CEO and the cleaning person in an argument and you, you ask the staff who's the winner of the argument, it's like, um, who whose name is on my paycheck again? <laughs> I know. It's, it's isn't it a fun read? Honestly, it's it's. And by the way, Patrick, you're not even exaggerating. That poll does exist it's in the book of him and a facilities person. So that's that's you're not even making that up. The does he know? that it's all horseshit is, is a big question. You know, if he knows that it's all, you know, bunk, to me that would be to believe in such, such a profound level of, of evil, really, given the pain that he has caused. So, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I can't tell you what he knows and doesn't know, but I choose to believe that he doesn't know. Because if, I, mm. if, he did, if he did really know the effect of his actions on others, and as the book makes clear, people have told him over and over again, in writing, in emails, you know, in absolute, you know, if he, I think he's, for some reason, he stopped himself from really realizing what he is and what the principles are. Um, because if I think about it another way, then I, I just find it too upsetting. There is like one defense that he puts forth. I forget. It might have been his lawyers who sent it to you mm. sort of said um, that interviewing ex-employees to, to write a book like this is a bit like interviewing someone's ex-wife to mm. uh, to write a book about them in, in that, of course, all you'll get is the complaints. And I, I do think there is some validity to that argument. But the the other side of that is that, that polling your employees, uh, you know, is, is not going to, to bring you to a, a great answer either. But how do you feel about that? Like, were there employees that you spoke to? Because, of course, it's easy to discuss maybe the 
the sort of more scandalous outcomes. But were there employees you spoke to who seemed maybe more devoted to the firm, who who felt that the principals had helped them, like that, that uh, you know, following this mm. approach lifted them up and made them think more clearly? So the argument that you've just put forward, which you're right, uh, Dalio's put forward and his lawyers put forward, is it's nothing short of a straw man argument. I didn't simply speak to ex-employees. I spoke to many current employees. I spoke to people with great fondness for Ray who feel sad about what he's become and what the principles have become. It's not a bunch of... I spoke to people with, you know, just complicated feelings who, who mm. said that there were good aspects to this, but then they would see it turned against them or turned against others and it just made them sick. You know, in the book, we have his own, you know, human resources people telling him in writing that... This is what people are saying. People fear being fired constantly and him just dismissing it. So I, I don't buy that it's, you know, it's just a bunch of ex, ex-wives. I, I agree with him. If you wrote a book and you just spoke to, uh, you know, people who didn't, who had acrimonious departures, I agree that would be misleading. That's not what happened here. Another interesting bit in the book, it's kind of early on in Ray's career, um, when he speaks with Paul Tudor Jones and he, mm. to a certain extent, this is almost a bit of a foundation of principles where he explains to Jones that he wants to put together a bunch of rules for investing that are based on kind of good decision making and to invest that way and to only change a rule once research has been done that shows that the new rule is better than the old rule. And that 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 was an interesting story, but it didn't, at least in the early days, work out, right? Well, let's give Ray credit here. That was a genuinely uh, impressive approach in the late 80s, early 90s. And you're right. Yep. Paul Tudor Jones took a look at his system and said that it, it wasn't worth employing at, at Tudor. Um, of course, ironically, then Ray, who also lives in Greenwich, Connecticut, with with uh, Paul, becomes much wealthier than Paul from yeah. allegedly this very this very system. What's What's interesting is that what this approach, though Ray claims, he's literally said it's quote timeless and universal. And you know, and I know, and anyone if any in the financial industry that it is so hard to stay ahead on trades. It is you have to invest so much in technology. And even then, you may not be right. I used to work years ago for Victor Niederhofer, who was one mm. of the early quant traders. And Vic's core belief is that any system that you can find that works has to stop working as people mm. employ it because, it, you know, the, your trading changes the markets. But in, in a way, when I look at that early conversation between Ray and Tudor, it's um, it's almost like he's come up with an idea for quantitative trading, but maybe isn't a quant himself, you know. So, and mm. I think that was even how it fell down was that he put rules forth, but then I believe Tudor's team back tested those rules and they didn't mm. find that they sort of sounded logical, but they didn't work in the real world. And mm. did did Ray move towards eventually like, is there sort of a, a, a quantitative basis, do you believe, for for his trading since then? So the word quantitative is interesting there because Bridgewater is very careful and Ray to, to describe it as systemized. It's a systemized system. 
So there is an investment system, they would say. Now, to the degree to which it is quantitative in a Niederhofer way or Renaissance Technologies way, there's no evidence that it that it is. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that it isn't because it would Bridgewater simply doesn't invest or employ those types of uh, employees. They don't have that type of trading system. As I say in the book, someone as recently as 2018 who joined the investment team couldn't believe his eyes they were still using Microsoft Excel. So this isn't a renaissance technologies. The argument so far is the best that I could tell, and I've spent a lot of time talking to current and former investment employees there, is that if there is a rule, if there is a theory of history that Bridgewater considers that a system, that's systematized. Now, and, and, and to be fair, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, that may literally have been a fair definition of systematized. I, I don't believe that it is anymore because the world has blown past that. And we now, hmm. we now know Two Sigma and Millennium and all these firms, when, when they say that they have a systematized investment process, they mean bang, bang, bang process. To a certain extent, even looking at uh, Ray's principles book, in a way, I would argue, uh, of course, based on my background, that the way you come up with trading principles is statistical analysis, right? Like you, you mm. find you come up with a rule, you see if it worked, and then you see if it works. Um, while the principles in Ray's book seem almost to be leaning in that direction, but never really uh, becoming numerate. They seem to, to sort of stay in the world of uh, uh, their descriptive uh, ideas that, that can have many meanings. Uh, so you and I know you've read The Man Who Solved the Market about Renaissance Technologies. Yeah. My, my friend Greg Zuckerman wrote that. It's a great book. Even in that book, you know, Jim Simons says essentially that even he doesn't even fully understand every trade that's going on at every moment and that he shouldn't because he yeah. is this colossal thing and that, you know, ideas go stale constantly. So to the degree that Bridgewater and Ray have always stuck to rules that only Ray can understand, they are falling behind the standard of, of the true leading hedge funds. That's what I would say. Another big part of the book was almost the idea that at a certain point, Ray kind of was inspired by, I guess, two big names came up, Warren Buffett, but maybe more so uh, Steve Jobs. Mm. And maybe uh, sort of building a legacy of being remembered as sort of a great business leader or someone whose who's thoughts sort of go down in history as being... Um, of great import. Do you, do you think that's really like kind of the TED Talks and whatever is, is that his goal is to have sort of a legacy that is greater than just the numeric returns that he achieved at Bridgewater? Okay, so Patrick, I know that at points in this interview, I have used some hedging language and I've been careful because I'm under a multi-billion dollar lawsuit threat. However, I'm not going to use hedging language here. There is no doubt in my mind that Ray Dalio's goal is to be seen as a Steve Jobs-like, Warren Buffett-like figure, period, full stop. I would be shocked if he claimed otherwise. He has been obsessed with years, for, for years, with being someone like Steve Jobs. He wanted Walter Isaacson to write his own biography. He hires Steve Jobs' you know, former lieutenant, John Rubenstein, like, like we talked about. Absolutely could not stop talking about Steve Jobs for years. 
And that, if you really want to know why does he keep talking about the principles, why can't he admit what we know to be true, if you read this book, you know it's not what he says it is. He can't. He can't because he's put all his chips in that basket by saying that I am the most principled man on earth. Yeah, it's it's interesting because about a year ago, I feel I saw a video with like P Diddy and um, yeah, yeah, and Ray like talking about did did he claim is the idea that Ray is P Diddy's mentor? Literally, not even the idea. Ray says P Diddy asked him, Ray Dalio, to be his mentor. I asked P Diddy's representatives to confirm that they would not confirm that. I think that speaks for itself. Now. Does Ray rap at all? Like, is there any evidence of rap music having come from Ray? There, there is not. I would also say there's very little evidence that I found of true animating joy coming from Ray, except when he is, you know, flaying one employee or or another. Um, I'm not saying he doesn't have hobbies or joys that he doesn't have happiness in his life, but for years he has seemed to to be just miserable with those those around him um that that is a steve jobs quality too by the way if you read walter isaacson's book in a in a funny way many extremely successful people they are extremely successful because they are so focused on their thing and so you know it it wouldn't be as much fun to necessarily hang out with someone like that as someone who uh lives a looser and less uh focused life you know it's you know even you read about people like warren buffett you know he comes off as a very uh nicer old gentleman on tv but equally i i believe he you know spends 100 percent of his time trolling through the accounts of companies you know he he's not a he he wouldn't be a guy you'd go out for a, a drink with on a friday night so i'll i'll I'll, I'll tell you this, even though it's not about Ray Dalio, because right? I think you're, you'll enjoy it, which is two or three weeks ago, I, I spent about a half hour, 45 minutes talking to Ken Griffin, the founder of Citadel, uh, for a New York Times story that we did about um, Harvard's response to um, and the Harvard student groups. This is not about the book. But mm-hmm. I've known Ken on and off. We're not, none, neither I nor Ken would claim to be personal friends. I'm a reporter who occasionally covers him. But in the course of the conversation, you know, we're talking, he's asking my opinion, I'm sort of saying like, well, you know, I'm here to interview you, whatever. It's a back and forth. He knows he's talking to the New York Times. I'm not claiming, again, that, you know, that this was the unvarnished Ken Griffin. In all of my conversations with Ray Dalio over the years, he never demonstrated that quality, that ability to just have the back and forth. He just wanted Mm. to tell you why he was right over and over and over again and why you were wrong over and over again. And I have to imagine that if that's what he's saying to me, who's you know a Wall Street Journal and a New York Times journalist, you you have to transpose that to what if you worked for him? What if you were mm. you know his his child? What if uh, what if you were a friend? Because if he can't even put it on just a little bit, just for me, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, gosh, what is he like behind closed doors? Yeah, I I guess I'm only so surprised that you know one of the wealthiest people in the world is awfully intense just because i think mm. oh, ken you know, is intense. Sort of like they're all intense but they don't all spend their entire conversation with you telling you how you're wrong and they're right they have they have other yeah. interests it's a bit of a puzzle it, it would appear as well at least in the book there's a feeling that there are certain chosen ones 
at Bridgewater for whom the rules don't seem to apply. Like, for example, often when uh, there's a, a, a big dispute at work uh, that's controversial, it, it sounds like it's all videotaped, edited, uploaded for everyone to watch and to analyse, even maybe years later when they join the firm. But there's one or two staff members who seem to not undergo the same scrutiny. And, and I'm slightly surprised that that's the case, because you would almost think that someone who is so focused on this system would broadly apply it or, or not apply it at all. Like, it's, it's a bit interesting that there are possibly chosen ones within the firm. What, what do you think causes that? Well, uh, first of all, I would say if, if your reveal is that at Bridgewater all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, I would, I would agree with you on that. I know it's like a cliche to bring up at this point, but look, raise number two, Greg Jensen, for many years was the one that everyone thought would succeed him. And as the book gets into, Greg really did, was held to a different standard for many, many years. And then when Greg came just that close, just about when he was just about to reach that, that, that golden chalice, Ray puts him on trial. And Ray pushes him all the way down. And he makes Greg go on what he calls a hero's journey, you know, to the bottom and back. So I, I do believe it is all planned. You know, he allowed Greg to get just right there and then wanted to be able to show that even Greg can be broken by me. A, a large criticism of hedge funds in general, that they never have a continuity plan, like Goldman Sachs, Morgan, the investment banks have a continuity plan. The hedge funds are always sort of one guy. And if that guy loses his edge or if he retires, there's not much left. Um, Ray seems to have attempted to have the continuity plan, but I think equally never wants to give up any control. And and I think there's many sort of um, even small businesses, family businesses, things like that, where where you see that sort of thing at play. Is, is it very different at Bridgewater or it's just uh, sort of that idea on steroids? Well, it's definitely that idea on steroids. I would say what's different about Bridgewater is that, you know, you can have a family, you know, but the guy who runs the laundromat by my, by my apartment, I, I believe he'll be there until he physically cannot be. But he's not claiming otherwise. Mm. Ray, for literally two decades, claimed that he was just about to retire. He was trying to retire. He had a system to retire. But then he would always find an excuse why those around him were disappointing him. And when they were disappointing him, it was inevitably an excuse to show why he, Ray Dalio, couldn't quite leave then. Now... Mm. This continues to the present day. You know, I reported in the New York Times just a few weeks ago that even now he's allegedly retired. He allegedly doesn't have a full-time job there, but he's still on the board and he suggested to the board that since their investments aren't working, maybe he, Ray Dalio, should be starting his own fund inside Bridgewater. He's, mm. you know, that's quite different from just not wanting to retire. That's, want, that's always needing and wanting to be right. Yeah. Now, another thing that was surprising in the book was, or, or maybe not surprising once you realize maybe how uh, how uh, important control appears to be to Ray, is some of 
the heroes that he uh, is supposed to look up to, like uh, it says Putin and mm. Xi in China, and even to the extent of having uh, sort of a, a team of, uh, what would you call it, sort of security personnel that he refers to as the Politburo. Sure. Is that, like, is that widely spoken about, this idea that, like, his sort of interest in uh, authoritarian leaders or...? Nothing is widely spoken about at, at Bridgewater. There is, there is a, a culture of, or, and there, there was a culture of not saying what you knew would you know, would get Ray angry. So far mm. as the creation of the Politburo, which is literally, he, Ray was literally inspired by China's, there's almost nothing I can say about that that the name doesn't say, it, you know, in itself. He literally created a Politburo inside Bridgewater, which functionally existed to investigate pretty much anyone Ray wanted for any reason. And all of these people inside Bridgewater, all of these purportedly independent thinkers, all of these people who, you know, have the power and responsibility under the principles to speak the truth, they all went, they all went along with it. They took the paycheck mm. and they kept going. Now, as the book draws to a close, there's a bit of a feeling that at least within, as the, the principles went out into the world in terms of, uh, you know, Ray's um, TV appearances and speeches and so on, that the COVID lockdowns might have brought a lot of the systematized principles within Bridgewater to, if not an end, uh, that that they were reduced significantly. Is that is that what you see? That's that's true. It 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 proved to Ray, for Ray, tough to be a bully, you know, through Zoom, and. Bridgewater and Ray have never acknowledged that. He continues to go on and talk about the principles as if, you know, nothing nothing has changed. But at the end of 2021, Bridgewater lays off the majority of the staff, which is devoted to these this huge apparatus. You know, the Politburo doesn't exist anymore. It, it only really exists in the popular imagination and in Ray continuing to, to talk about it. Ray asked Bridgewater to pay him. This, this man is worth an estimated $20 billion dollars. He wanted Bridgewater to pay him a licensing fee to continue to use the quote-unquote principles tools after Ray had mm. retired. And it was a grave miscalculation because that was a great excuse for the current leadership of Bridgewater to say, oh, no, we can't pay for that, and then to dump it. But but isn't the firm still majority owned by him? Like he could, if they're managing his money, he could just force them to... Uh you know, follow his rules or no? Is it, is it much more of an independent firm now? Well, here's how I'll answer that. Who, who do you think has the power? Do you think it's the person who has the name chief executive? Do you think it's the person who has the title chief investment officer? Or is it the one man who at any moment could simply decide to write a tweet or a LinkedIn post or go on CNBC and say one sentence? All he has to do is say, I don't have confidence in the current leadership of Bridgewater Associates. That's all he has to do. The firm is mm. over. So who yeah. who really holds the power here? Yeah, I mean, it, it would seem, and, and even just the fact, like if, if he announced that he was pulling, uh, he was managing his own money rather than having the firm manage his money. To get it, Once again, it's even, it's back to that problem of continuity at hedge funds. You know, it's still very much tied to the founder, uh, unless you have, uh, you know, a replacement where uh, who sort of uh, 
almost outshines the founder of the firm, right? Well, and this is why Bridgewater for years wanted to talk about its quote-unquote investment system that would live on past Dalio. What I found so interesting was the firm was briefly doing quite well, uh, I think about two years ago, um, and they credited that in a letter to investors. They credited that to an investment committee, a new investment committee that did not include Ray Dalio. Wow. Hmm. So, you know, there's some tension there. And what has the long-term performance of Bridgewater been? Like, has it, has it generally, because, you know, say what you will about, uh, you know, whether a guy is likable or not, you know, mm. you don't really put your money at a firm because the founder is likable. You put it there to generate returns. Um, I know in the book it implied that returns fell off after mm. the credit crunch. But in the, you know, if you look at the entire history of the firm, uh, kind of on a, what can I say, like not just returns, but re a sharp ratio mm. or returns for volatility basis, like has it been a good place for people to have their money? Well, I would disagree with you on one thing. Yes, it's true that you or I, when we're looking at our 401k, we want to, we want to make the best return risk-adjusted. But I, I would actually disagree and say that you do, in, in, institutional investors in many cases do put their money with firms where they like the founder, where they, where they buy into the story. Now, so far as, and, and Ray is one of the world's great storytellers. Now, mm. so far as the returns, if you look from inception, from the start of Bridgewater, of course they're going to look good. It includes years where the firm had virtually no money um, under management. If you look over the past, say, 13 years since uh, since the start of uh, 2011, it's extremely poor performance relative to the markets, relative to other hedge funds. Um, it's muddled around flat many years. And Ray has used that unbelievably to his advantage. He says, well, look, we're not losing you money. We're stewards of capital. It is a it is a wonderful marketing slogan, but it doesn't appear to be lasting forever because this firm peaked at around 168 billion dollars. Now it has, last I checked, around 125 billion, maybe even less. If this firm, which can't, is still massive, but... oh my gosh, I, I'll take it. By the way, I'll I'm, yeah. I accept. Um, and the fees, I I thought at one point in in the book. Were the was the management fee over three percent or something like that? On on it depends. They, it is a sliding scale, and there's a number of funds. But the firm was so big that on pure alpha, even just a two percent management fee was just an incredible annuity for everyone. And yeah. um and remember, you're in hedge funds. You're paying a a performance fee on any performance over zero. So yeah, markets since 2010 have been up, up, up overall. So the, the fact that Bridgewater hasn't been close to matching them doesn't even matter too much because they're charging a performance fee just on any raw performance, period. No, it, it's an interesting one because, well, for one thing, fees do appear to have generally come down quite a lot. Like I think most, I think most 
funds nowadays, you can probably invest at one and ten. Like there's not not many mm. people that get away with two and twenty anymore. But mm. even the initial idea of two and twenty was sort of a a thing where you'd take a great money manager and you'd say, look, uh, you know, go wild, but with a hundred million dollars, and we'll pay you mm. this big fee structure. But once it gets into the billions, you know, the idea was that the two would sort of cover the hiring of a few staff members and paying the rent on the office. And the 20 was the mm. was the incentive like that. That's where the wealth was being generated. While obviously, when you get into the billions, uh, the two becomes, uh, frankly, uh, if not really more significant than the 20. Right. Uh, it's the oldest story ever told in in hedge funds that um, about these these incentives. Um, but what I I will say is, in order to keep that that management fee, in order to keep those assets, you've got to be able to convince people that you over and over, even in bad years, that you have a repeatable investment system to stick with you. And I can't criticize Ray for being anything other than the world's greatest hedge fund marketer, and in in that sense. Now, if there were, because people do want to learn, you know, mm. the reason even people read biographies, autobiographies, whatever it might be, is that they want to walk away with a few lessons as to like, are, are there things that I could change about myself mm. to, uh, you know, sort of optimize the way I live to, um, you know, to be more successful, whatever successful means. Mm. Are there takeaways like have you learned something from ray um about sort of how to uh, you know that has improved your life uh, absolutely I've, I've even sent talk to ray about this and and his he has a principle called trust in truth which is essentially means uh to you know try not try not to find excuses to to lie they like, trust in truth now he doesn't follow this really very often but it's a great it's a great principle and the, what I honestly have taken out of him is, from him rather, is this idea that if, if you're in a disagreement with someone, it's okay just to stop, the, stop in his tracks and say, hey, I think this is what we're disagreeing about. I think it's this thing. What, can we have it out just right here on this so that we can move past it? As opposed to, you know, looping back two hours later. Like f finding the core Let's just, of the problem and saying this, if, if we can solve this, we can solve the whole thing. Right. I think it involves much more empathy and, and that humans are endlessly more complicated than, than Ray might believe. But I, I have honestly learned that even in my, my day job, you know, at the New York Times, if I'm having a disagreement with an editor, instead of trying to convince her of my perspective, I say, OK, let's find a third option here. You know, it's mm. like we're not eye to eye here. There must be something that like, that we both uh, agree with. So I've honestly taken taken a lot from that. Um, I would say that the other thing that anyone reading this book uh, hopefully should should take away is that there there isn't always a reason for things. You know, there you, not everything in your life has to be because of a grand system or a grand dominoes it's okay for there to be disappointments sometimes there's luck sometimes you're unlucky and you can move past that it's it's there are there you're right that there are no heroes so to speak in this this book but there are many people even though they're they're totally they're not powerful at bridgewater who make the smallest of stands 
and then they remove themselves from it. And mm. I find them honestly quite inspiring because they do what they can, but then instead of staying there and taking the money or instead of staying there and continuing to argue, they say, okay, I've lost. They pick up their chips and, and they go home. And I've learned a lot from that. Sometimes you're not going to convince the other person. And yeah, no, there, there's interesting things because, you know, you, you could look at Bridgewater and say, gosh, there's an awful lot of staff attrition. But equally, I look around Wall Street in general. You know, I remember in my 20s when I started working at an investment bank. Mm. And in my head, I thought it would be a whole bunch of, you know, gray haired old men. And you turn up and there's really no one on the trading floor much above the age of about 35, mm. you know. And the investment industry is kind of like that, where there's a lot of, you know, the, I guess if you look at the size of the... Uh, analyst classes at an investment bank and then the number of MDs, you know, a lot of people fall along the path. Do do significantly more fall along the path at Bridgewater or is is this just the nature of the financial industry that, that people get sort of either pushed out or weeded out, however you want to view it? Look, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of attrition at Bridgewater and I personally don't have the numbers and I don't believe that he's ever given them out. So I, I couldn't compare it to a Morgan Stanley. But what I what I would say is is this that the asset management industry writ large is a is a great business for the asset manager. So the I don't quite buy any of the high minded patina of if I work for BlackRock or Blackstone, I'm helping retirees, um, you know, teachers retirement systems, you know, Etc. Etc. I, I I don't need to hear that. It's okay. The asset management industry is a great place to be when you're the asset manager collecting collecting the fee. Um, I am in journalism. You know, I'm a I'm a reporter. Even in journalism, I would say there becomes a point in your 30s, early 40s where a lot of people do do leave, and um, I I think it's okay to have multiple interests in your life. This is actually a Ray Dalio thing for me. What I what I what saddens me most about him is that he never had another interest. He just kept talking about the principles. He never mm. I don't, I have joy in my life. I have disappointment. I have, you know, you I'm I've no doubt that you do too, you know? We have we have ups and downs and he just he just kept flogging yeah. this one this one thing and couldn't accept that the time had passed. And I think to go back to your earlier question, that, that probably is the greatest lesson that I've learned. Well, that's probably a great point to wrap up the uh, the conversation here. I would tell my viewers, uh, you know, that this book, it uh, by the time this video comes out, the book is probably available on Amazon. Um, it's a great read. Uh, it's very interesting. And Actually, I would argue, you know, I've got both of the books here, Principles and The Fund, and it's reasonable to read both of them and sort of see both sides of the story. And even, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be interested. I, As you've said, you, you expect Ray to, uh, you know, come out and respond to... to uh, what's said in the book and it i'm sure both you and i will find it interesting to see what he has to say look i people ask me all the time what i think about principles about his book 
and I say it's it's an autobiography. It's one man's opinion. It's fascinating to get inside one person's head. What what I've written is what it's like for the rest of the people around Ray Dalio and Bridgewater, and I think that's perfectly valid too. So on that note, we'll wrap up the interview. I'll leave a link to Rob's book in the description, along with a link to Principles by Ray Dalio, if you want to read both. Rob's book is a real page-turner, and I would recommend it to my viewers. Don't forget to sign up to Compounded Daily, the free newsletter I mentioned at the start of the video, using the link in the description. If you enjoyed this interview, you should watch my interview with Zeke Fox on his book, Number Go Up, next. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.